Hi, my name is Alan. I'm a business designer and welcome to the Beyond Users podcast, where we learn about business to become better designers who not only solve user challenges, but also achieve business goals. In the sixth episode, I spoke with Sudi Masht. Sudi is a customer experience research lead at Candid Co. And uh, in the fifth episode, I spoke with Bobby, who is her colleague. And with Bobby, we dived a lot uh, into the way they do research at Candid Co. So it only made sense to dive deeper into these topics with Sudi. Sudi has a PhD and she specializes in consumer behavior and behavioral economics. And you will see that very clearly um, in this conversation. So in the episode, we spoke about doing proactive user research that anticipates rather than reacts to busy challenges. Uh, then we talked about mixing qualitative and quantitative research methods. And uh, related to that, also how to find the right profiles for your research questions and your research methods. Just one more thing before diving into the episode. I've recently created an email course called Measuring Design, where I explain what are design metrics and how you can use them to measure your design work. And not only that, but also how you can present it to non-designers to basically show the value of your work. It's a free five-day email course with a nice framework that I call Design Metric Canvas that you can use on your projects. So to get access to the course, please head to beyondusers.com. And now, without further ado, here is a conversation with Sudi Mashed. Cool. Um, so you have a pretty unusual path to becoming a designer or a design researcher, or I don't know what your title is exactly. Let's talk about that. But I, what I first want to get is like, uh, what led you to your current job at Candid Co.? Of fate, it almost feels like. Uh, I was finishing up my dissertation at Columbia, and I knew I wanted to go back into the private sector and work for a company doing user research. And I was connected to my current boss, Bobby, uh, through a friend of a friend of a friend. And he was looking for a researcher to hire. And we got on the phone and started talking to one another. And right off the bat, our energies matched. And it seemed like a really good fit because the work that the problems that they were trying to solve here were very uh, similar to the work that I had done in my research, which was at the heart of it, trying to get people to change their behaviors. Um, and so I've been here for about seven months now, um, leading the research efforts. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit maybe about your um, uh, research in more in the academia. So what exactly did you do there? So I have my PhD in psychology, uh, but it's not the kind of couch psychology where you sit down and talk to somebody. It's more mm -hmm. about a research um, angle where it's really focused on decision making. So why do people make certain decisions and how can we influence those decisions without them knowing? But said another way, it's really how to get people to influence influence their decisions without taking any any of their choices away from them. So uh, there's differences between traditional economic theory, which thinks that people always behave in a way that's best to their benefit, mm -hmm. right? But we know that humans have a really hard way 
uh, have a really difficult time of behaving as they should. So smoking, drinking, eating, all of these things, everyone knows is bad for them, yet we still do it. And what um, psychology and behavioral economics together have found um, is that people's preferences are actually quite flexible and they can mm -hmm. be changed at various moments of the decision-making process. Um, and so my focus was actually on uh, food behaviors. I mm. took research that had been used for, you know, getting people in financial decisions to make better decisions in the moment about their long-term financial future, um, things like climate change, kind of what it boils down to is making a better decision now to benefit you in the future. And so um, I did a bunch of research uh, trying to get people to make a better decision about uh, whether or not to eat some tempting snacks in the moment over um, another alternative that they had, which had nothing to do with um, food. Super interesting. You got any quick tips for us how uh, <laughs> how we can change our behavior? Oh, yeah, of course. So uh, the, the specific research that, that I did uh, focused on how people thought about a decision. Um, mm -hmm. And so what, what uh, my team and I found, researchers at, at Columbia, we found that if you actually just start off by thinking about the negative reasons for not doing something over positive reasons, that actually influences your behavior in the end. Because your inclination, once you're given something, is always to think about why you want it. So think about like when someone puts like a ice cream in front of you, you think, mm -hmm. oh, I love ice cream. It's hot outside, all these other reasons. But by simply beginning by thinking why you don't want something, that actually influences your decision in the end and you choose not to do that behavior. Hmm. So for example, before I would go and buy chocolate, I wouldn't be thinking how I would enjoy it, but more like, okay, if I eat it, what are the like possible negative consequences of that? Exactly. And then it's more likely for me not to buy it. Exactly. I mean, and there are other things you can do too to kind of avoid that behavior, but that's kind of how, uh, that was the kind of stuff that I focused on was decision-making in the moment. Yeah, super interesting. How does this now relate or how does this translate now into your work at Candid? Oh, so many ways, uh, which, which is really exciting that I get to kind of take the work that I did in academia, which is, which is applicable, but not nearly as applied as actually dealing with customers making a decision. Um, so the work that we do, I work for a health and beauty startup, uh, which uh, is we're trying to get people to straighten their teeth over a long period of time. And so mm -hmm. I, I draw parallels to so many different areas of research, um, anticipating voting, right? Like people are upset by what's happening right now and then they want to vote in the future. But then when it comes to voting, they don't actually go to the polls. Um, climate change, you know, everyone believes, most people believe in climate change and yet the behaviors that they do today don't really reflect their beliefs in the long term, right? It's more convenient for me just to toss out a plastic bottle rather than wait until I can recycle it. We've mm -hmm. all been guilty of that. Yeah. Uh, and so what we're doing here is we're taking the theories that researchers have, have used um, to change those specific behaviors of people and, and apply them to the behaviors that we're seeing our customers doing. So we have a lot of um, customers who, who start the process 
of, of wanting to straighten their teeth. But it's really important for us to nudge them in such a way that they continue to be motivated to do so. And that happens at various points in the funnel where we kind of have to come back in and in various ways and tactics that, that research has, has, has demonstrated over and over again that, uh, you know, describing a situation a certain way, reminding them of why they're doing this, um, telling them that other people have done this, um, and getting them to kind of move forward with the process. Can you maybe give like one, you talked about a couple of examples or a few examples here now. Can you take one of them and maybe make it even more concrete? Of course. So one of the, uh, one of the most popular examples of, of behavioral economics or behavioral insights comes from uh, a, a group out of the UK known as the Behavioral Insights Group. And they were one of like the most, you know, they're one of the first groups of people who really started applying behavioral economics to human behavior. And what they found was that uh, by telling people, they, by, they got people to pay their taxes more quickly on time simply by telling them that other people had gotten their taxes in quicker too. So that's something that we call social norms. It's about t- informing another group of people what other people are doing and that those individuals then want to join that group. So in one part of our funnel, we're trying to get people to return something to us. And we've started to do a lot of variety of testing using social norms, saying something like, you know, most people get this back to us in a few days. And just simply by adding that to a text message or an email or something like that, we see a lift in the rate of people returning um, these kits to us. Wow, interesting. So basically you're sending these kits out to potential users or customers, and then they need to send it back. And if you just add like this one sentence to the email or whatever, then you basically increase the number of people who send it back. Right. And, and, you know, we always are very careful about when we introduce certain messaging to customers, because what we are hypothesizing is that the, the mindset of a customer changes over time. And so, you know, a customer in week in, in day five of the process is very different than a customer um, in day 20. And so we target knowing what we know from decision-making um, and the theories, we target messaging based on those timestamps. So in what way is the customer in the fifth day different from the one in the 20th? Uh, motivated, right? I mean, your first day of, of not smoking or your first day of diet or any sort of behavior change, you're much more motivated towards the beginning. Um, you know, mm-hmm. we see this in New Year's resolutions. Uh, I think it takes about two weeks for people's resolutions just to kind of disappear because it's, it's hard to make behavior change. And so um, you have to target, you have to speak to that customer very differently because their motivation is waning. Mm-hmm. Okay, maybe let's take a step back now. That was super interesting. But um, in the last episode, when I talked to Bobby, he was talking about the whole process. And I think it would be interesting also for the listeners to go to basically through the whole process and see how you do it. Um, so maybe the way we could start is basically, um, so Bobby told us that the research is rooted in business. So I, I was wondering where do the briefs come from, right? So how do you know what to do the research on? 
So we're really familiar with with the process that our, our customers are going through. And so one one thing that I've done for my team is over and over remind them that we are not a reactive group. We're a very proactive group and we don't wait for problems to come to us. We attack the problems head on. Even if and so what, what we what we do from there is that we actually systematically lay out a bunch of different research ideas. Uh, as well as interventions that could happen based on what we anticipate being problems. And from the very beginning, from the first day I was here, we started running experiments, whether or not it was through uh, an email campaign or bringing in users to have them test our product. We were always running experiments. And so that from there, we always had a baseline of what we were trying to build up towards. So we have all of our research goals are rooted in the business and they tie right back to um, the goals of the company. Mm-hmm. But how did you identify those? So let's say that I'm listening to this podcast now and I'm working in a company and I want to be proactive too. How do I find these briefs that I think are worth spending my time on? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. Um, I think what it really requires is sitting down with uh, people from other parts of the company and together deciding where they anticipate their issues coming from and where you anticipate the issues and how together you can tackle those goals. So one thing that that I started doing when I first began here um, as a researcher was every two weeks, I would have meetings with other people in different departments. So sales, operations, marketing, engineering, And every single week we would sit down, every two weeks, sorry, we would sit down and we would talk about what are the issues that they're seeing or the issues that they're anticipating and how can I help them? And so together through those conversations, we really narrowed down the biggest issues that we should be focusing on. And then under those big titles, there are like a million different sub issues and you start just attacking them one by one in a very systematic way. You really have to step back and ask, what is the biggest issue and how can I move this forward? Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's have, let's say that we found one issue, mm-hmm. right? And you, before that, you said that you always have these research questions, then interventions or ideas for interventions. Mm-hmm. Is this how you then frame the brief? So basically kind of, this is the question, this is the hypothesis, uh, and this is how we'll be tested. Or is there something else also in this picture? Um, it's, it's basically what you just described. It's like, this is the problem. Um, mm-hmm. This is the hypothesis. This is going to be our approach. And then we run experiments to see how they play out. Um, we really let the data speak for itself. Um, and we're also very quick to change something if, if we see that it's not going in the right direction, right? It's from the beginning, it, it can be quite clear whether or not a certain campaign or a certain Um, behavior change that we implemented in our research is not pushing the needle in the right direction. And then we'll come back to the board and redo it again and start over. I think many times when we talk about the research in the design world, we talked at least like when I worked at IDEA, we did a lot of interviews, like Mm -hmm. in-person interviews. We talked to the users. We tried to find what their problems are, but what I'm hearing for you now, from you now is also that you are running like experiments in practice and you're getting data out of it. Um, 
So I think what I want to ask is like, what are all different approaches that you use in this research that you gather these data? So either interviews, experiments, what else? Uh, we do interviews, we do experiments, we do surveys, uh, customer surveys a lot, you know, for finding like a certain um, behavior that our customers are doing, we'll go right to the source and start asking them. Um, it's pretty easy to set up, uh, thanks to our sales team. Um, and it really just depends on on the problem at hand. You know, sometimes it's not just surveys or uh, in-person uh, user research um, or customer interviews. Sometimes it, it has to be a combination of all three of those things, um, depending on what is the question that you're trying to answer. Um, so when it comes to when it comes to much more metric focused goals, we tend to be much more in-person user research focused. Um, what we try and do here is replicate what happens at home in our lab so that we can kind of recreate the experience that the customer is going through when they're using our product. Um, and so that we can kind of see where are the pain points um, and how we can best design for those issues. And then on top of that, so that's like a, a group of quantitative research. And then on top of that, we'll have interviews with the customer or the user who has come into our office. And then we'll pair those two pieces of information together to make recommendations to the product team, to the design team, to the sales team, to the operations team, whatever it is, um, on how to better improve the customer experience um, and how to better improve um, our process. Is there maybe like a case study that you could share with us? Or in office, well, yeah. Um, I mean, like in general, like this mixing the interview with the experiment, and then how this plays out to the end result. Yeah, so um, we have a, a quite a, a complicated process that we we ask our customers to do, which is normally done by a trained professional uh, in in a doctor's office, and we're trying to get them to do it at home. So one thing that. Uh, Bobby and I got together and started talking about after we had already done quite a bit of user research I and mean, we just were not getting it right. Something was not working for us. And we sat down and we're like, all right, we don't know what the problems are. And so why don't we start with the bare minimum of information we can give our users? All right. So we came together and we said, all right, we have no we 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 have hypotheses as to what's what's going wrong but we're not exactly sure. So why don't we let the users speak for themselves and we'll react to what the users are doing. So we would bring in a, one user and we would have them do our process. And then after we saw the issues that they were having based on what we observed as well as what they told us, right? So what what they're telling us is much more qualitative. We would use those insights to then improve our manual that we gave our customers and as well as shoot a video that we are going to give our customers. And so that the next person that comes in after that initial research, after that initial user, no longer has the specific issues that the first person had. And so we would mm -hmm. slowly just build on this process one by one. Some of it was quantitative that we were watching. Mm -hmm. And then other times it was qualitative. The things that the user would tell us were frustrating that we ourselves could not notice by watching them do the process. So that's a really good example of bringing in both 
watching users do it and us quantifying their behaviors, as well as the qualitative part of it, of them describing to us what were the most frustrating parts, what was not clear to them, uh, what, what do they think, what was the information that they thought they needed to do a better job and bring those together. Mm -hmm. Is there any rule of uh, how many interviewees, so like what is the uh, sample size of this research? So when you're doing quantitative research, you the sample sizes have to be a, a little bit bigger. Uh, we typically try and hit about 20 users um, for our in-person research when we're trying to watch people do product, use the product. But when it comes to things like app design or you know, building empathy maps for our customers, affinity maps for our customers. Um, we tend to shoot for a little bit of a smaller size between uh, five and 10 people. And that's because, you know, when you, when you start asking customers, you know, what it is that they think about your product, you know, why didn't they buy your product? All these questions that are important to us, it can be difficult for them to vocalize it. Um, and so I almost think about, You know, they can give, give us the consciousness of their thought process, but really what we want to know is subconsciously, what are they thinking? And that's where, uh, you know, we kind of bring in empathy mapping and affinity mapping to get really at the heart, as, heart of what they think our process is about. Yeah, that's one thing I wanted to ask you. Like, what are the assets that you would bring to these kind of interviews? I guess it really depends on what are you trying to do research on. But like, okay, so one example is, You might give them the product to use. Another mm -hmm. one might be this empathy exercise. What else have you used in the research? Uh, we do a lot of um, user testing on apps. You know, so mm -hmm. a lot, you know, we're trying to gauge like some uh, aspects of our our the app that we're building or the uh, website design that we're working on. Um, what else do we do? Sometimes we give them surveys to fill out themselves if, if we don't want to kind of go through this, this interview process um, and that we want them to, to tell us a little bit more information about how they're feeling as they're going through our process. Um, what else do we do? It's all good. We can yeah. also, that, that was, that was enough. <laughs> Interesting. So, um, Speaking of these questionnaires and interviews, um, what is important when, or what do you pay attention to when you're phrasing questions? Mm -hmm. um, and so one is what do you pay attention to? And one is uh, the second part of the question is how is it this different if you are in an interview setting or in a survey? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. Um, for the interview setting, I find, I find customer interviews actually to be quite difficult uh, because you want to, You, you want to ask certain questions, but you know by just asking certain questions the way you normally would, you're not really going to get to the heart of the answer. So we always start out by trying to understand who, who that person is as a consumer, right? So, you know, how do you typically shop for products? Um, how long does it typically take you to buy? Where do you do it? Um, that's kind of getting to the, the conscious aspect of like a human behavior, but it helps us understand, you know, who, who is our customer? Uh, you know, are they shopping on their phone? Um, does it take them a long time to do something before they decide to buy a product? Um, do they talk to other people about it? That kind of stuff. And then we really get then moved towards the more business focused questions that we have. Um, 
what we do with our, our customer interviews is we always frame a much larger high level business question um, that is focused on, you know, customer satisfaction, uh, reducing costs or increasing profits. Um, and then under that header, we have a bunch of different sub questions. So for example, if we're trying to see whether or not there was any um, pain points on our website, we'll start asking the customer, you know, what was, was there any frustration? Like, were you frustrated at all in this process? Um, mm-hmm. You know, if you could take a magic wand and, and change anything about this website, what would it be? Um, so you kind of have to give them much, much broader answers, broader questions to respond to. And you, you typically try and avoid yes and no questions um, so that you can get them talking. Um, mm-hmm. And we find that the best, best question is actually not a question at all. We ask them to tell us a moment when X, Y, Z happens or, you know, anything like that. Anything that kind of gets them to, to, to start talking a little bit more. And then, and then maybe you could nudge them in certain ways if, if you're trying to really get to like a different answer that, than which you originally started asking them about. Um, when it comes to surveys, the questions are much, are much more straightforward. Uh, I find with customer surveys, the, the easiest thing to use and the most, the most effective thing to use is what we call a Likert scale. That's what we call a Likert scale in research. And you see this all over the place. On a scale of one to five, how do you feel about such and such? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and those are really good because um, it's, 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 a, it's a range, which is typically how people feel. Um, and there are certain analyses you can do with those that kind of allows you to predict their behavior in the end. So, you know, people typically who scored a three out of five, they were most likely to feel this way about another process. Um, And so you kind of try and give yourself a a wide range um, when you're using survey data as opposed to customer interviews, wide range Mm -hmm. of numerical data. Just going back for a second to the interviews, what I'm also trying to understand is what is the mood that you're trying to create during those interviews? Is it like cozy and like we are friends and or is it like very laboratory? Okay, this is the question. This is the next question. <laughs> uh, I can't help but be cozy and friendly uh, to our interviewees. Uh, I like talking to our customers a lot. And I always, I always preface the, the conversation with there's no wrong answer and that I actually had mm. no no input in the design of, of, of what you're seeing, uh, which is which is not entirely true. At this point, I, I have had some input, but you know, I won't take it personally. I'm, I'm not a designer, and so you know, if they don't like the color of our of our product, that that doesn't mean anything to me, or the images on our website. <laughs> I really mm-hmm. want to know how does the design of our product and the process that they're going through how does that influence their happiness or their satisfaction with our research or with our with our company so the next thing that is really tricky with this survey and the the whole research basically is how do you find the right people right Mm -hmm. so how do you how do you see who is the right person to ask this question and who is not that's a good question so our in-person research when we when we bring people into to use our product is very different than the people who we have our customer interviews with. So customer interviews are going to be our customers. And it's, 
I, it's really just me sitting at my computer, emailing people who I know have either purchased our product or who have, you know, given us their email. Um, and you just reach out to them and you say, you know, I'm, I'm on the research team and I am looking for some insights on how you feel about our product or about the whole process of shopping for um, this product in general. And you, you know, say it's going to take 15 to 20 minutes and, and you throw in an incentive. I, I am a big believer in paying customers for their time as well as our users. So, you know, customer interviews, we interview customers. Our users, our user research, where we're looking to, for product, it's much more difficult to get our customers to come into our office. Um, and uh, I mean, in looking forward, you know, there are a lot of different research that I do want to do with our customers. But for now, essentially what we try and do is we try and bring in people who match the profiles of our customers the most. So I, I work with marketing and, you know, we'll do kind of like a, a demographic sweep of the customers that have, you know, are, are different parts of our funnel. Um, and those are the people who we target. So it's either sometimes we get friends to come in who match the demographic that we're trying to hit, who we typically think are our customers, or we work with a recruiting firm um, to bring uh to bring to who, who will screen individuals before they bring them into our office. So getting customers um, and getting researcher, getting participants who are similar to your customer demographic is crucial because yeah. what happens on the tail end of, of this is when we get up and we present our research to the team, inevitably people are going to want to know, okay, well, what about our customers? You know, is this going to replicate outside of this office once we, you know, go out and we start making these changes? Because a lot of the things that we recommend, you know, can be quite drastic. Um, you know, we're, we're asking to make changes to our packaging, to, to, the, to the, you know, the, what customers are getting in, in, their, in their mail and stuff like that. And uh, as a research team, you want to be able to get up there and say with confidence that this can replicate when we take it to real life, to our real life customers. And I think this is an important point. Um, I saw that a lot of times also an idea that sometimes you cannot get, I mean, it's hard to recruit people for the interviews. And a lot of the times the friends or people you actually know are pretty good interviewees because you know them so well that you know if they fit the fo fit the profile or not. Right. right. And I had a feeling sometimes before I joined Ideas that um, I just can't do this research because um, I need a recruiting firm yeah. to help me with that. But a lot of the times it actually turned out that the people we recruited ourselves through our networks that were actually better fit. Yeah. Um, because we kind of know what they actually who they are and uh, what kind of problems they have. Right. And at, and at the heart of it, you know, when we ask people to, to use our product, everyone is a stranger to this process of taking at home impressions of their teeth. Uh, yeah. Most people have not done that. And so, um, you know, the, the, the one restraint that we do have is that once they've done it once, we can't use them again, right? It's just like you're one and done with these individuals. But I should mention that, that I've implemented a policy 
now at the company is that every single time someone new starts, we ask them to give us a couple of names of their people in their network who they feel would be interested in uh, being a participant. And um, so that we can now, you know, slowly start to to build our own bank so that we don't always have to go to a recruitment firm. And I will add, um, you know, one thing that we've, we've added to the process um, of our research that's actually been quite effective when we're doing user testing, you know, people coming into our office and, and, and using our actual product, we, we, we have to remind ourselves that, that our customers have bought this product and they want to do a good job. And that's very different than someone who comes into the office off the street and who knows he's going to get paid for being here. And so what we've done is that we've played around with incentives to say, all right, you're going to get a baseline payment of, you know, however many dollars. And then if you do a good job, we'll actually give you more money, right? So that is in fact, incentivizing them to kind of be in the mindset of the customer when they're home trying to do a good job because the people coming off the street haven't sunk any money into this process, but the people at home have. But how, just curious, like if you incentivize them for good work, um, could they be incentivized to give you positive answers to the things you want to, you want them to actually be critical about? That's a good question. Um, you know, we don't incentivize them. We only incentivize them on the outcome in which they give us. So when we are asking them to do dental impressions of their teeth and photos of their teeth, for us, it's, it's, it's binary. You either did it right or you didn't do it. Um, mm -hmm. And I should say that these people are still being very handsomely compensated. So um, I think that on the tail end, when we then go in and, and interview them about their experience, I haven't actually seen customers trying to, or sorry, participants, like subjects, trying to, to please us. I worry about that a little bit more, to be honest with you, when we do customer interviews. Um, customer interviews, I'm mm -hmm. a little bit more cautious about people telling us bad news. How do you catch that? How do you catch someone giving you false positive news? Oh. <laughs> Is there a way to catch Is that? Is it a vision or I don't know? Uh, so one thing that we have started to do, which is has been helpful is right off the bat the first question that i ask them is how satisfied are you with your candid experience on a scale of one to five mm. and they give me an answer and then that kind of sets the tone for the rest of the interview because i've noticed once you get customers to start talking about the experience they're thinking about things that they otherwise would not have ever thought of, right? Uh, you know, yeah. like when walking down the street, would they ever think about whether or not they liked exactly. our website, right? Mm -hmm. And so right off the bat, what we do is we ask them that to kind of get them in the mindset of, you know, mm -hmm. what, what, what really do they feel about us? And then from there, we move forward. Um, and then, you know, we also um, have been using the responses from um, – our survey that we have, our assessment that we have on our website. Um, and we segment our customers who we reach out to based on those answers. And so, you know, there's certain questions that we have in there that ask them, you know, how skeptical are you of this process? And we can then target those individuals to specifically get at the people who likely are not very happy or not very enthusiastic about us. Mm -hmm. 
Got it. Another thing I discussed with Bobby and um, was very interesting to me was you have these briefs which are maybe more specific than in like this blue sky thinking type of a project, mm-hmm. right? So you probably don't bring, this is my assumption, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, do you bring customers, sorry, uh, interviewees in and um, just try to answer one research question or do you try to bundle them? And if you do bundle them, then how do you find, uh, how do you decide which questions gets who? Hmm. That's a good question. So when we are doing certain kinds of research, so like right now we're about to launch a big customer testing um, project where we are experimenting with a bunch of different um, products and directions and stuff like that. When I'm sending things to customers, I tend to bundle a lot of stuff into one package because it's an opportunity to test a bunch of different behaviors um, once they have our product. So, you know, is, is our, is our experiment working to get them to, to return certain things back quicker? Um, and then on the other end, um, are people doing their impressions at home correctly? Right. So that's, that, that mm-hmm. is a bundle that we're doing, but I typically really have one research question or business problem that I'm trying to solve uh, to begin with. And then if I see other opportunities to interject other problems, then I'll start adding them in. So with customer surveys um, or customer interviews, that's a really good opportunity to address various different problems that you're, that you're, that you're trying to answer. Mm -hmm. So since you were in academia, I wanted to ask you, how do you synthesize these learnings? Um, the way we did it at IDEA was we were looking for patterns in this sea of qualitative data. Mm-hmm. But because you were in academia, I am assuming maybe you have had a different experience, maybe use more statistical analysis or something. So how do you do it? Yeah, so when we have quantitative data, uh, we do a series of regressions and other kinds of analyses uh, to see whether or not we significantly change mm-hmm. people's behaviors. You know, from the very beginning when I started here, we were collecting data and analyzing it and then benchmarking it so that once we move forward, um, you always have a place from where you came from. And so those... Great. Sorry. Benchmarking against your own results or against uh, competitors or someone else? Against your own results, right? It's like this, okay, is, okay. this is where we started and then this is where we are today. Um, so, and what we've done here, which, which actually makes me really happy as, as someone who understands you know, statistics, is that we really pay attention to what is st- st- statistically significant. Really, only differences that are statistically significant um, do we consider to be like a, a big change in people's behaviors? Um, so that's how we deal with our quantitative data. Are you doing this, the statistical analysis, or do you have anyone in the company who takes care of that? Just I'm curious. Do- I'm doing that. Okay. Yeah. So are you using like SPSS or some other tool? I use, I use RStudio. RStudio. Okay. It's not, cool. it's not user-friendly at all. It was something that, um, <laughs> <laughs> that we were given in, in grad school and we were kind of just told to figure it out. Um, and, and I've, I've come to love it a lot. It's, it's a free program. Um, it takes some patience, but if you 
um, you know, allow yourself, you know, if you don't get frustrated with yourself a lot and you use resources like GitHub, um, you can really do a lot with it. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, kind of starting to conclude this whole discussion. I'm curious, like we talked a lot about the process itself, but what are, what are maybe like, what are the mindset mistakes that people do when they enter the, this research? What have you seen like from your coworkers? What do they struggle with the most? Maybe process, maybe mindset. I think they struggle with how they fit into the big picture of the company. Um, I've noticed that, uh, like some people who come in, um, you know, are feel as though uh, research can can somewhat be isolating, and it can be unless you really take a proactive approach to getting involved in all different kinds of projects with people across other teams. I mean, it might just be me, but I see the world as one big experiment. I think that there are opportunities all over the place to see how we can change our customers' behavior. And so it really takes effort from the research side to tell them how you can be useful. And what really helps is, you know, presenting your research. Uh, We do that quite often here. We're very transparent about what we do. And that also gets people um, interested in what we're doing, like between those meetings. And then it also gets people to come to us to say, you know, do you have any ideas about how we can solve this problem? We're really, what we're doing here is we're much more of an insights team than we are a research team. You know, we're trying to explain our customers' behavior and try and figure out how we can change that. So I think that's one thing that a lot of um, researchers might think is that, you know, they have to kind of sit in the corner and wait people to come to them. It's the exact opposite. You have to go out and find it. And it's there. And they would love your help. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And I think another thing that uh, people... Uh, maybe struggle with at first is is quite is quite frankly being very organized. It takes a lot of organization um, on the research team to make sure that that research is carried out properly. Um, that we're archiving uh, what we're finding um, in a way so that you know a year from now when the when the CEO comes to you and asks like you know, what was our rate of return back in December, you can very quickly and go back and find that because we have that data, we collected it and we know it. Got it. So in your team, are there like, who's part of the team? What kind of profile? Do you have like any designers part of the team or is it more people from academia who have done statistically significant research? <laughs> uh, the, so I, um, I work very closely with a prototype designer um, she has a background in uh, email marketing um, as well as user research. So mm-hmm. she was trained to be a user research. And so together we really um, make our process, uh, she makes it much more official because I come in from the data perspective. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm not a designer, um, but I do understand how design influences people's behavior. And then what she does, um, she comes from a UX background. So she, you know, brings in all of the other um, methods that we're using now to really uh, inform us what our customers are feeling, empathy mapping, affinity mapping, heuristics, all this kind of stuff. And together, um, we're really working together to, to build this department. 
since most of the listeners of this podcast are designers, I think it would be interesting to hear like a outside perspective of someone who maybe just got into uh, design world a little bit more lately. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you like, what is maybe one thing that surprised you about design in a positive and maybe then in a negative way? Mm. I'll be honest with you. This is kind of the first time I'm really working closely with designers. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that designers have a really difficult job of being true to the research, like what, what I've found, and then implementing that into design um, because they have a much more aesthetic viewpoint of like what's acceptable, right? There's like a threshold for them that they feel comfortable sending out their own design out. Um, I think that might be a little bit of a negative thing that I found with designers is that, you know, I, I want to say the research says this, like the numbers speak this and then trying to translate that into a design that is on brand um, with the company. Um, and, mm -hmm. and sometimes there is, there is some pushback from there, but it just takes a lot of collaboration to make that work. Mm -hmm. A positive aspect. I love love working with designers i think that they are just they have they're just so resourceful and can bring so much to the table and you know i watch um i watch our designers work and, and i just ask like is there anything that you can't do <laughs> really <laughs> you know they they have been trained to think differently um as 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 i have as well you know we both come from really unique backgrounds of training uh, to think about problems very differently. And I think together we make an incredibly powerful team. Yeah. And I think a lot of times designers aren't used to working with researchers. Um, and I think, you know, this is the first time a lot of people are working with researchers. Um, and I think where they sometimes are in a place where they have to assume something about, you know, the customer, they can just come and ask me because I have the answer. Mm -hmm. But I think this is where the power of these two different worlds live. Like, basically, I'm also coming more from the business perspective, right? Mm -hmm. So I've done a business school and coming into design, I've seen kind of both worlds now. And uh, I think there is a true power, really. Like, if you can connect the two mm -hmm. and have this design generative thinking, but also a little bit of analytical or a little bit more of analytical thinking, yeah. it really can produce like wonders. Yeah. Yeah, I, I love, I've always loved working with, um, I've always loved learning about design. Um, you know, this whole like design thinking process is super fascinating to me. <laughs> yeah. It's a bit of a buzzword lately, but it's definitely, if, if you know how to actually do it, it's definitely very valuable. Yeah. Well, one word we don't use here is empathy. <laughs> oh, yeah, why not? It's a buzzword. I think it's been at this point, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't have to be a, be trained in design to know that that was a word that was used all the time. And I think, I think, mm -hmm. um, you know, to be empathetic is important, but I think to also, uh, solve people's issues is, is, is the bigger problem. Yeah. I think empathy is sometimes being used by us designers as a excuse to not do research, right? You can say, Hey, I've, I feel this is the right way. And yeah. I, I understand my customer, but like empathy, I think in its essence is actually gathering data. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great takeaway. <laughs> Maybe I'm going to put that on my whiteboard. Empathy is essentially collecting data. Cool. Yeah. 
Well, Sudi, thanks a lot for taking the time and sharing all these great, great tips. I think it's, for me, it was very fascinating to see how you do it because I've never seen like a true researcher or someone coming from academia with more, let's say, a rigorous approach to this whole, whole research, how you do it. And I, I definitely got a lot away. Maybe just as the last question, like for any listeners who might want to learn more or get in touch with you or anything, like uh, where can they find your uh, profiles on social media or email or whatever you are comfortable with sharing? Yeah, yeah, they can definitely email me. Um, I love talking to other researchers. Um, I think that there is going to be like a big push to do direct-to-consumer research. I think this is having its its day in the sun. Um, and I would love to tell people more about, you know, how we're approaching it here. Um, they can reach me at sudy at candidco.com. Um, or my LinkedIn profile has all my up-to-date information. I'm very responsive on LinkedIn. Cool. You let me know how many people write to you. I'm curious. <laughs> I will. We're going to see, we're going to start a test today, Alan, or I'll say yes. after this podcast, <laughs> we had a significant increase in contact. <laughs> Statistically significant. Significant, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Outreach. Thanks again, Sudi. It was, it was great. Yeah. It was great talking to you, Alan. Thank you so much for reaching out. I really enjoyed this. Cool, that's it in today's episode. If you do like this show or this episode, I kindly ask you to consider leaving a review or a comment on iTunes or any other podcast app for that matter. Um, this really helps me a lot in getting great guests and also um, it helps other listeners find this show easier on these crowded uh, podcasts apps. And again, if you're interested in how to measure design, to basically show the value of your design work to non-designers and to also know yourself how you're doing, like how you can track the progress of your work, head to beyondusers.com and there you can sign up for a five-day free email course and um, in there you will learn what design metrics are, how you can use them on your projects and um, you'll also get to download a free design metric canvas which is a framework that you can use in your projects to identify all the appropriate and necessary metrics. So for that, head to beyondusers.com. Cool, that's it for today. Thanks for your attention and see you soon.